1: Welcome to Angstain Wretches,
0: that's right, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, I'm not feeling good. I do not feel good. I'm sugar cleansing, and yesterday I-
1: What does sugar cleansing mean?
0: I have for many months been saying, well, I'm going to get back on the low-carb lifestyle, but until then, let's live it up. Let's eat various gummy candies. Let's go ahead and have the
1: That's what you eat when you are off when you cheat. Well if I mean not, this, that this, wouldn't be my cheat
0: This food. cheat goes back to early October. So cheating is seems like too but it, but the the time has come and it hurts. I wanna tell you. I feel I don't want to sound as weak as I am, but when I realized yesterday I was super irritable and snappish. I was like, what is it? It's like, oh, you have not, your body has not had the 100 carbohydrates that it, it is accustomed to having by now.
1: So, but do you get used to it?
0: Uh, well, I don't know. Viewers on our stream on that they can watch on the oh, yes. Podcast Please, YouTube channel.
1: You can watch us on YouTube. Chris and me just, you, you look slim.
0: Well, not really, but thank you. I haven't
1: been cheating that bad but anyways watch us tune in
0: watch and see how much fatter or less fat I become in the I coming will episodes. say
1: on this topic before I had a baby mm-hmm. I was very mindful of my
0: eat Eliana is wearing leather pants so just whatever else she says after this put in the context of she is comfortably and stylishly wearing leather trousers
1: um I just can't be bothered to put the energy into it anymore. And I I realized for me that it doesn't really matter. So skinny people don't know what
0: it's like. I thought
1: that it was the product of all my efforts into this area. And I realized that it's the same if I when I don't have any. I I do think that that is a big
0: part of listening, listening to you talk about this or listening to my Jessica talk about this. And it's like, I want to lose three and a half pounds, and for me, that's again a rounding error. That's like,
1: but like a big breakfast. That's what's so annoying about men because if I tried to lose three and a half pounds, it would take me like two months.
0: Yes, because it, the the phenomenon is like it is in golf. So the distance between shooting a hundred and shooting eighty is a lot farther than the distance from shooting eighty and shooting seventy five. The big, the first big change is easy, but getting that last little bit is very, very yeah. hard. It's much like. Much like journalistic excellence. Hmm. Hmm.
1: (laughs) Okay. I will just say, when I have briefly tried this keto thing, like, it is not the gummy candies. I just want, like, bread and butter.
0: I know. It's delicious. but It is so good. Well, in order to try to compensate that for today so that I would be agreeable for today's recording, for breakfast I had a bag of roast beef. Are you serious? A three-egg omelet with cheese. What is
1: a bag of roast beef?
0: Picture it. (laughs) <laughs> you can see it. It's a bag of meat, and I ate I'm it. I'm
1: horrified. I had a
0: bag of roast beef. I had a three-egg omelet with cheese. I had a half an avocado. And on my way out the door, grabbed a string cheese. Like, oh, one more of these.
1: I'm starting to think, like, keto might not be the answer to your problems. It might be, like, a portion control situation. But see, that's
0: the thing. Yesterday, I forgot to eat enough, and I was murderous. Like, it was really, really bad. So this eating that volume is to get through... The first few days until my body, hopefully.
1: Do you get used to it?
0: Yeah. You well, do? I love okay. it. I, I never feel better. I'm never happier than when I'm eating low carb. It's really the best. But, man, I want to tell you, I had, I had gone way too far in the other direction. And they were called Cine Dragons from Trader Joe's.
1: I'm going to Google that right now.
0: And do you like, uh, like, Red Hots, Cinnamon Candies?
1: I like the, the... Atomic
0: Fireball, if you will.
1: This is not what I would choose. But I like the, not the Mike and Ikes, but the Hot Red, Tamales. Yeah, the Hot Tamales. I like yeah, this. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Or the little Cinnamon Hearts that are coming up for Valentine's no, Day. No, no. Oh.
1: These look okay. It's just not what I would choose. You know, Trader Joe's, I really wish that they delivered. Just going to... Say.
0: Just put it out there. Things yeah. white women said. Uh, Alex, I'll take things, <laughs> things white Karen's, women said thanks for $500. Karen said. Yeah. I wish Trader Joe's delivered.
1: It's time for our front page. Let us know if you have any diet-related feedback <laughs> for Chris. I will not be taking it. Up first, the Biden documents, Chris, we talked about this last week, but the Washington Post had a piece... Headline, the Biden documents scandal is a test for the media and an opportunity. And this is a story by their media reporters. And they write, after two years of relative quiet, the Washington press corps mounted familiar battle stations this week as a Biden administration scandal took shape. Further down, they say, yet for all the pent-up vigor with which they launched into the facts of the case, journalists also labored to contextualize a matter made all the more complex by the shadow of former President Donald Trump's own ongoing classified documents scandal, and they girded against partisan criticism that they are going too hard or too soft on the story. Do you have a take?
0: Look, I think this is a great piece. I think it's correct and smart and talks about the problems Look, obviously there's for if you're a Republican, there's gonna be some eye rolls in that you're gonna have as you read the story like, oh, you think. But I think generally they've they've caught the tension here and the performative nature of the White House press briefings on this subject go very much to this point. You know do you know my feelings about the White House press briefing?
1: I do, but please enlighten our audience. Not I know a, that was not actually a not a question for me.
0: Not a fan. Well, no, I mean Here's the thing: It's in Corinne Jean Pierre's interest, and in this article, they're citing Ed O'Keefe, who's been tough with them, but you could say Peter Ducey from Fox, anybody else. It's in everybody's interest to have feisty, dramatic exchanges in that briefing, right? And Karine Jean Pierre is standing up for her boss, and she's standing up for these things, and it gives it's a free space for journalists to, so. You know about my theory about fake tough questions? No. So the toughest question... How que- many
1: theories do we have here? So many. Yeah, come hit us. But the
0: theory of the fake tough question is, and or it's like Bill O'Reilly used to ask questions, that sounded really tough because he was really he was mad and saying it this way. But once you peel the question back, it's not hard to answer at all. I, I discovered this when he was interviewing Barack Obama ahead of the Super Bowl because... Oh, by the way, do you think... Who has the Super Bowl this year, and will they be interviewing Joe Biden? The tradition, the tradition will continue. So the
1: oh, good question.
0: The network that hosts the network that buys the Super Bowl uh, also, as a bonus round, gets a sit down interview with the president. And when Fox had it with Obama, they did it with Bill O'Reilly, and that was that should have been a warning sign about what was going to happen to the news division at Fox. But anyway, the O'Reilly tough questions to Obama when you looked at him were not tough at all because Obama could dismiss them out of hand. The toughest questions are the ones that come from a fair-minded or even friendly perspective, right? The toughest question for, I mean, for Barack Obama is more, was more likely to come from the left than the right. You know what I mean? Not really. Okay. So <laughs> if I say to you, the, the Minnesota Twins are a garbage team. They're the worst. The Minnesota Twins are a joke. I hate the Minnesota Twins. Now, tell me, why is your lineup so terrible? Is that a tough question for you to answer?
1: Well, I think you're defining like question from the left and question from the right differently than well, I. No,
0: would. what I mean is, is that it? my question is for you now. Is, was that be a tough question for you to answer? No, no, but because
1: like the priors in the question, but that's sounds not like hostile. a good example of a question from the right.
0: Well. No, no, no. What I mean is it's harder. The tougher questions for Republicans tend to come from the right. The tougher questions for Democrats tend to come from the left because they're asked there. There is not the there is not the prior hostility. Does that make sense? Yes. So the, the questions that too seldom are asked in American journalism are fair minded, neutral or even friendly, difficult questions. These kinds of questions to Corinne Jean-Pierre are not really tough questions, right? They're just repetitive questions. When can you, why don't you tell us what happened with this? Where are this? So what does she say? I refer you again to the, to the Office of White House Counsel. I refer you again to the Justice Department. This is like Tony Snow or Dana Perino when they, when they were getting peppered with questions from Helen Thomas or whomever what were they going to say i've told you before i'll tell you again you need to direct your question to the pentagon and helen thomas got to go forward and say what they're stonewalling at the white house what does keith and peter ducey get to say they're stonewalling me i asked her 50 times she wouldn't answer but no there's nothing happens right it doesn't go anywhere and it is quite performative
1: okay i have a different like coming at this from a different angle when, when the post writes that you know the pent-up vigor with which they launched into the facts of the case and blah 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 I think you know what what those of us on the right feel is that okay like the press is covering this but it you, you do sense that like you know there's the Yiddish there's a the Yiddish phrase like they don't feel it in their kishkas like they when they are covering a scandal from a Democrat administration they do They just, their heart isn't in it the way that it was when they covered a Trump administration scandal. The breathlessness, the passion, the excitement. They don't, because they are partisans and they cannot bury that aspect of himself, they don't, most of them, you know, 95% of them, they don't bring the same, you know, like, now with feeling. Like, they don't do it with feeling. And so they are going through the motions, but they are not doing it with feeling.
0: I think the point in this article that I certainly take your point. And I, I know that a little bit of it is that, you know, you say that coming from the right. I'm sure people coming from the left disagree because it hits differently for well, them. You know,
1: they're like, obviously, this isn't a scandal, and you know, blah.
0: Right. So, so what? What's the old saying? Where you sit depends. Where you yeah. stand depends on where you sit. So, some of that is a factor, but I certainly take your point that given the bent of the most of the Washington press corps, that they're going to be sitting on on the opposite side from you. But I will say that their point, and I think this is crucial. Girded against partisan criticism that they are going too hard or too soft on the story, so there is the self consciousness. To your point, there is the self consciousness.
1: So they're trying to position themselves not like chasing the story.
0: Yeah, and and also there's not much to there. I'm not going to the the facts of the case, but there's not much to chase in the sense that now we wait, right? Now and now we wait, and the hardest part. Tell me what you think about this. What, when there's a story, by the time it breaks, by the time the story breaks, you're probably in a, in a case like this already at sort of the stopping point in the investigation, and now you're waiting. And the public appetite or producer's appetite or editor's appetite for new stories about the topic is not in sync, right? Because in this case, you go back to November that's when the first discovery is made. All this other stuff has happened for months, and now it's like, okay, we are presenting to you the fact that this is where we are, and there have been a couple of new document finds. They found a couple more last week. But now they're now you're just waiting, and it's hard to generate interest in a story where there isn't, and this was certainly the, the case with the Russia investigations. There's not much new to say. Well,
1: they managed. They managed with the Russia investigations, and I think, like, you know, Part of the fun of being at Politico was, you know, on something like the Biden documents, the discussions would be like, well, you know, what's a unique angle we could take? Because so much of this, yeah, like there's not new information that you're learning, but it would be like the searching out of different angles to examine the story from. And that's like, you know, we're not seeing a ton of that, but, you know, there's the political story of this. There's the. I mean, to me, like this raises so many questions about the political judgment about the Biden team. And there's like a backstory of, oh, oh, okay, who are the players in the room who decided like we found out about this in November? We're going to hold it. We're going to drip, drip, drip it out. Because all of the crisis management, you know, uh, advice is like just get it out there, front run it, like that. I I could think of like a million angles. You know, you could do a whole story on like crisis managers' critique of the Biden administration handling. And you don't this. feel
0: like you've seen, like,
1: not that much. I mean, it's it's not vicious coverage <laughs> of you know holding the powers that be accountable.
0: I I'm I'm sure that's true, but I have. I I do not think that in volume, certainly by volume and by angle, I've seen a lot of coverage on this. And I I find I find the coverage of this as here. Here's here's where I'll make an equivalency. I'm about as interested in the coverage of this as I am in the coverage of the Mar-a-Lago documents, which is to say, I got it. We'll see. I don't think Donald Trump's going to be charged with a crime.
1: Now he won't be.
0: I don't think he was going to be before. I do think
1: he was going to be before. That was like, you know, right down the middle of the plate
0: for them. I I would have had to, there there would have to be something a lot bigger than the mishandling of documents for Donald Trump to have been charged with a crime. I don't think Merrick Garland was going to go. I I don't think that's how he was feeling.
1: Okay. Up next. Up next. We have Semaphore breaking the news. Although I had actually heard this that CNN. They have this huge opening in their primetime lineup. Yeah, um,
0: this is Max Tanney at Semaphore. Yeah,
1: the 9, 10, and 11 o'clock hours in their yeah. lineup. And so they write the that they are looking at comedians like so, John Stewart.
0: I was going to say, they're looking at comedians. And when I saw that, I thought, okay, tell yeah, me more.
1: Like Bill, And then here's the list. Okay. The news entertainment personality could fill the primetime 9 to 11 p.m. hours with a non traditional version of the news. Five people familiar with the planning said CNN executives have floated names including Bill Maher, Trevor Noah, Arsenio Hall, and Jon Stewart and have looked at other comedic news focused talk shows for inspiration. They're looking for their version of John Oliver. One television news insider uh, familiar with the search told Semaphore.
0: Oh, uh, my gosh.
1: Okay, Chris does not like this idea.
0: Do you like that idea?
1: I'm not opposed to it.
0: It's so boring and played out and bad.
1: Is it better than Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo and whatever? Like
0: Not as far as... Look, I would actually be interested to see Or I mean
1: that. worse than.
0: Okay. I would actually be interested to see, Would Trevor Noah or Jon Stewart be worse in a daily... I don't think Jon Stewart would go back to doing a daily show. But would do you think they would be better? No, they'd be terrible. It would be awful. Because they would have the same problem that they talk about, what's his name, the Englishman, John Oliver. John Oliver's show is once a week, and it's super tedious because it is... Have you ever watched Seth Meyers' late-night TV show? Yes. It is awful. It is crushingly, terribly awful. And the reason it is crushingly, terribly awful is that it's Rachel Maddow with more gags. It's just (laughs) polemical stupid it's just so in laughing up their sleeve at other people so let's take Stephen Colbert obviously a person of the left and obviously a person who doesn't have trouble finding ways to rip on Republicans right that was his whole shtick for the Colbert rapport yeah on Comedy Central he is he has more humor good humor lightness and fair-mindedness And then you look at Seth Meyers, and it's just screedy, whiny, tribal self-affirmation. The idea of putting a hack liberal comedian on for an hour a night to do hack liberal comedy like Trevor Noah, and I'm sorry to say what Jon Stewart would have to be to fill, to do the, the job just does not do it. Now, look, Arsenio Hall, I would be interested in seeing what Arsenio Hall would do, frankly, I haven't heard, we haven't heard from him a ton, and I'd be interested. You know who else? If if the answer here, if I'd opened this article up, and it had said Bill Burr, I would say, okay, let's talk. If they had said Tina Fey, I would have said. So
1: you're taking exception with the names oh, mentioned, yes. not oh. I, so. I think that's fine, but I think the idea behind it is like it is interesting, totally, and different. Whatever about the specific names, but, but that's
0: the thing: is that it has to be good. It well, has to every, be funny. The
1: talent is everything.
0: Well, but if so, you're doing the news, the difference between the the talent is important, but not crucially important. Not as crucially important. If you're doing comedy, and and so it's not just the name; it's the kind of name. Trevor Noah is not funny.
1: I totally agree with that. Trevor
0: Noah can be funny, but he generally is not funny because his jokes are political jokes. And political jokes, and I'm sorry to say to the Capitol steps, what was the name of the guy? Mark. Mark Shield. Mark. Not Mark Shields. Mark. But he Ooh. had uh, everybody do the deficit rag. Who's that? Oh, my gosh. He had a. Where was that? It was Mark. And I can't remember his last name. But he would do PBS specials. And he would play a piano. And he would have funny spoof songs. I have
1: no idea. Never heard of him. Mark
0: them. Russell. And, and. Much, much love. I'm. I hope he's. I hope he's still out there doing the deficit rag. But political as as do you know do you know the difference between a political cartoon and a cartoon? One is funny. The political cartoon where it's like, okay, so in this political cartoon, the wheelbarrow represents Iran policy, and the sandbags represent nuclear. Proli- and you're like, okay, Thomas Nast, we gotcha. Comedy that. You know, Bob Hope did it, did it. Johnny Carson did it. It can be done that you can do political comedy with a light touch. And and what's the Gridiron motto? Singe not burn. That you can do it that way. But that's corny. I'm pro corn, but that's corny. But to be cool, like how do, do you like Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live?
1: I don't really watch Saturday Night Live. So I always watch the week
0: I always watch Weekend Update. And the way that Weekend Update is good, and I, the reason I like Colin Jost and Michael Che, is they spread it around, right? They obviously are not conservatives, but they spread it around. They're like the onion. They bust everybody's chops, and they come at things from surprising angles, and they and they do that. The way that Dennis Miller, Norm MacDonald, Tina Fey, speaking of Tina Fey, that can be funny. Trevor, Trevor Noah is not funny for those same reasons because he, he doesn't do that stuff. So if CNN... What would work for CNN would probably it would probably work better to have Trevor Noah than it would to have Bill Burr because Bill Burr would upset the audience from time to time because he
1: needs someone to upset the audience.
0: I think they're I think they're gonna if they do I just I I would love to see them take a chance on doing this but political humor is really hard to do well and mostly not funny.
1: Oh Chris, <laughs> so I sent this this week I. I sent this to Chris and I said, Chris, this is, has your name written all over it. And this was a Washington Post news piece that said that the headline of which is, oh, it's from January 3rd. I should flag, but I still had to send it. Climate change puts more women at risk for domestic violence. From Kenya to Uh, India and the Philippines, more frequent and intense extreme weather events have led to escalating threats against women and girls. And it's based in Kenya. And in the piece, it says, you know, so and so the woman who's a subject is one of dozens of women who have arrived at a a refuge in Kenya in recent months, fleeing violence that they say got worse as each successive year of low rainfall plunged their families deeper into poverty. Her semi-nomadic Samburu community of pastoralists are particularly vulnerable to drought because they depend on the livestock whose emaciated corpses litter the barren lands that once provided plentiful grazing. For these and many other women around the world, the threat of violence could become more common as climate change makes extreme weather events more intense and frequent.
0: Man, oh man. And by the way, we should say this. Here's the, the note on this. The Washington Post is publishing this article in partnership with The Fuller Project, a non-profit newsroom dedicated to the coverage of women's issues around the world. So this is this is a a project and the Washington Post has a lot of projects that it does regarding climate change including you know my favorite the co-sponsored with Rolex, yeah. the, the good news the good news about climate change with Rolex. The world may be ending, but you can keep you can count down the final minutes on your Oyster Perpetual. It's no problem. Well, first tell me how this struck you because you are a lady and I am not.
1: No matter what is going on for these people, the cause is climate change. Right. So let's go back like, you know, 100 steps in the chain of causation here and we'll pick this one. Right. I mean the answer is predetermined when they write the piece.
0: Right, you could also talk about women who live in countries with terrible corrupt governments are more subject to s- domestic violence. Yeah. You could say that women who live under rule by certain we call I want to use the right terminology here under certain theocratic regimes suffer more domestic violence. There's a lot of things that cause more domestic violence. I'm I'm sure that when there are when there are ecological disasters that make living harder and times are harder, there's more domestic violence. I don't doubt that. But my complaint here is, at a time when we should be talking about what we can do together for good solutions to energy questions, to good solutions about what, you know, we, we, we're living in an age when we should be talking about new breakthroughs in nuclear fission instead of fusion right? We're talking about big breakthroughs that are going to change the way that we live, that are going to change all of this stuff. There's a lot to talk about in the world of energy. Making people feel guilty about climate change by linking it to domestic violence in Kenya is not the way that you get people to cooperate to address the issues that are in front of us.
1: What do we got next?
0: We have, oh, Blockbuster New York Times story accidentally leaked phone numbers of Russian soldiers criticizing war. This is a Vice report about the New York Times report. Joseph Cox, the deck is, for months, the Times has been exposing the phone numbers of soldiers who criticized the war, as well as the numbers of potential family members. September 2022, inadvertently exposed the apparent phone numbers of Russian soldiers, as well as the apparent civilian family members they were speaking to. Motherboard has learned some of these were providing a frank assessment of the ongoing Ukraine war and blunt criticisms of their superiors, including Vladimir Putin himself. The exposure potentially put the people at risk of reprisal from their own government and third parties. Last week, for example, dozens of Russian soldiers were killed in an attack by Ukrainian forces. The Kremlin said they were targeted based on their cell phone data for Russian troops. Cell phone use is a persistent lethal danger. The times wrote, and I don't think that the times I've, not only do I not think it's clear the Times did not intend to put any of these soldiers' families at risk or anything like that. But it was it's it's good it, it's good reporting from vice and it is something that we should be aware of that as we're reporting,
1: hell of an oversight. Given yeah. how many layers of bureaucracy um, Exist at that paper.
0: After Googling one, this is the article, after Googling one, Motherboard found the first and last name of an individual who appeared to be a Russian soldier, as listed on a website that was set up to dox Russian soldiers who were allegedly fighting in the war in Ukraine. They call, Motherboard called two exposed numbers. One went to voicemail and the other was disconnected. So anyway, it was an oversight. I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but...
1: I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but okay. This is an all-timer. We have got to play the clip of Andrea Mitchell who, unbelievably enough, is still on the air, but chiding her colleague, Garrett Haake. She
0: just quarters after the fact that at the end of the day, she was, as she described herself, pro-life, and that she felt that it was important uh, to vote for these measures despite their uh, potentially politically damaging or politically unappealing uh, appearance, if you will, for uh, Garrett, future, let me r- just, future voters. Garrett, let me sir. just
1: interrupt and say that pro-life is a term that they may, that an entire group... Uh, wants to use but that is uh not an accurate description.
0: I'm using it because that's the term she used to describe I herself, understand. Andrea. I
1: understand. I mean just just right down the middle there. Awkward. Awkward. I mean Awkward. you would you would never anyway. know what her personal views on uh, the on the issue are, would you Chris?
0: Like a dog just crapped on the rug. Like <sighs> like talking to this reporter like his dog just crapped on her living room rug. And anyway she says moving on I wonder where the term pro-choice came from was that foisted upon the people who favored keeping Roe v Wade Oh no wait a minute that's what they came up with because they didn't want to be pro-abortion and so in the, you are far too young to know or care about this but
1: I love Chris is like four years older than I am but
0: but so yeah. the pro-choice, moniker was taken to do what? Where did that evolve from? So that they didn't want they didn't want to be pro abortion. They were saying, "We're not pro abortion. We're in favor of a woman's right to choose. Don't call us pro abortion. We're pro choice." And so the uh, the anti-abortion people didn't want to be anti-abortion then. They said, "Okay, well if you're pro choice then we're pro life." That's how that happened. And Andrea Mitchell was already a professional journalist. Well,
1: she doesn't have sides. She's well, she doesn't not have obviously sides. not taking sides. I you know, possible to tell what she what she really thinks here. Oh, this
0: is a Beacon Joint. This is this was flagged by yeah. by your own Washington Free Beacon, yeah, which I note it. has a gold check mark and yet we do not hear. Who's we? Inkstained wretched. Oh. We lack. Well, we don't have a Twitter. But when we get one, we demand that Elon Musk make it a gold check mark. And every day that we don't have a gold check mark is another day of of the tyranny Of the gold checks. It's how we live.
1: Okay. Up next, we have a real sign that the relatively new Washington Post op-ed or editorial and op-ed page editor, David Shipley, who came over from Bloomberg to replace the late Fred Hyatt, is making his mark with an editorial. The Washington Post published an editorial against the crime bill that the D.C. City Council just passed they overrode mayor muriel bowser's veto and it's a lulu it is crazy it is a lulu crime is way up in dc and this bill lowers maximum sentences for lots of violent crimes and the
0: bill eliminates life sentences and gets rid of mandatory minimums for every crime but first degree murder the maximum pen—I'm reading from the post editorial—the maximum penalty for someone convicted of a violent felony while using a gun to commit more violence. ...would drop to four years from 15 years. This is not an evidence-based approach to public safety. The data is clear that firearms offenders recidivate at higher rates and more quickly than those who committed crimes without guns. Maximum sentences are seldom pursued under the status quo, if ever, but limiting them so drastically will deprive prosecutors of needed discretion. U.S. Attorney for D.C. Matthew M. Graves has warned that language in the 450-page omnibus will make it harder to charge repeat offenders for unlawful gun possession... It is a
1: oh also the bill abolishes a mandatory minimum for first degree murder.
0: yes so it's a it's a cuckoo cloud like this is the kind of thing that the prosecutor in San Francisco was Chase recalled for yeah and Muriel Bowser, not a noted hardline, the woman who gave us Black Lives Matter Plaza. Not a noted,
1: not a noted broken windows stop and frisk yes, advocate. This, this is this yeah. is
0: not this is not William Bratton said you can't do it. It's too much, and the council overrode her. What I think is interesting, and I I wondered what would happen. So when Shipley took over for, as you say, Fred Hyatt, Hi- what Fred Hyatt had managed to do at the Washington Post. How long was he editorial page editor at the Washington Post? I think
1: he was there for three decades. And let me make sure, Fred Hyatt.
0: The Washington Post editorial page managed to surprise, and it had a sort of—I think I'm trying to think of who. Oh, what was the name of the guy? The Eugene's not Samuels. Robert Samuelson. Do you remember Robert Samuelson? Wrote for the Post for decades. He ran that. Worked for the Post forever. Democrat. Oh, on the national security side. What's his name? The the guy who is the the mouthpiece for the CIA, David Ignatius. So there was a, a sort of left of center democratic establishmentarian point of view that the Washington post editorial page had that applied also to DC politics, because as much as the Washington post hates it to be true, they are the local newspaper for a medium sized city in the United States, not just competitor to the New York times and wall street journal. And I really was encouraged by this because it tells me that Shipley is staying or or in part staying where, where Hyatt stayed because this is not the kind of editorial that you would get from a wokester.
1: Well, he's definitely not that.
0: In, in honor, I thought you were giving us an ointment in honor of Kevin Williamson, my colleague at the dispatch, agreeing. So he wrote a, the, his piece, is headline, The Strangeness of Psychotic Jew Hatred. And last week we talked about the survey that the Washington Post reported on.
1: Yeah, they were shocked to find that anti-Semitism exists. It was the ADL survey. The
0: ADL survey that the Post reported on talking about that stuff. Here's what Kevin wrote. Anti-Semitism is a strange prejudice. As the great liberal economist Ludwig von Mises pointed out, most common bigotry, for example, anti-black racism in the United States, is based upon some supported, sub- supposed fault or deficiency in the despised population. Yet anti-Semites scorn Jews for vices that look a lot like virtues, that they are intelligent and pursue education, that they are unusually successful in business and particularly in prestigious businesses such as finance and entertainment, that they have a strong sense of communal responsibility, that they are cosmopolitan, et cetera. And he had that I, I like this piece so much because it agreed with what I said. That's how you know a piece is good, is if it agrees well, with the things that okay. you said.
1: I, I I like Kevin's take on it, but but the anti Semites would say that they would not say, "Oh, we hate Jews because they care about education so much." They would say, "Well, they're they're
0: Controlling successful the
1: weather. because they're greedy and they're dishonest in business, and their gains are ill begotten and done through conspiracies, and they exert." control in these back rooms and you know they don't see i mean kevin says well they get it through hard work and good values well no he and, goes on from there you know he, he goes but, up but, and talks but about it's uh, it's like seeing the worst in and what is there and
0: here's what kevin writes none of this what you just described stands up to any real scrutiny of yeah. course and none of it makes much sense if you take five minutes to think about it but for the psychotic Jew hater and the conspiracy nut, the upside of a political discourse dominated by tropes and memes and social media exchanges is that nobody does take five minutes to think about it. I think it is far from coincidental that the golden age of liberal democracy was also the golden age of newspapers. The age of social media will produce and has produced a different kind of politics, one with more tribalism, more unmoored passion and inevitably more psychotic Jew hatred.
1: Well, you know, the Walter Russell Mead theory is always that, like, rise in anti-Semitism is linked to bad, other bad things happening yes. in the country. Because it That's is right. a symptom of, like, sickness.
0: Uh-huh, um, uh-huh,
1: uh-huh. All right, Chris, and you have this Atlantic article.
0: A great, great piece. Good for the Atlantic. The Atlantic.
1: Not something we say often.
0: Take Detransitioners Seriously by Leo Valdez Valdez. Valdez, I don't know, it's with an S, not and not a Z. So I'm probably getting it wrong. By Leo Valdez and Kinnan McKinnon, Faith and Bagara. So these are two trans. Well, here I'll just I'll I'll read you the lead. When Kristen Beck, a decorated Navy SEAL veteran, came out as a transgender woman in 2013, she became a high-profile advocate for the trans community, a role that earned her glowing coverage in left-wing and mainstream center-left media. But unless you've been reading right wing websites in recent months, you might never know that Beck has since detransitioned and has gone back to the name Chris Beck. Last month, Beck declared that he had, quote, lived in hell for the past 10 years. Most of the outlets that reported with enthusiasm on Beck's initial transition have yet to cover the latest chapter in his life story. Here's what the authors say. Both of us are trans academics. One of us studies the history of trans activism. The other recently studied detransitioners' experiences in depth. We strongly oppose efforts in state legislatures and elsewhere to target trans children and their families and pass laws restricting treatment options for gender dysphoria, a condition that the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Manual defines as an impairment or distress over an incongruence between a person's gender identity and their gender assigned at birth. But trans trans rights advocates... And mainstream media outlets should stop downplaying the reality of detransition, lest readers and viewers conclude that it's a negligible issue. It's not. And it goes on from there, and it talks about the statistics, and it talks about all of this stuff. Here's the conclusion. Will the LGBTQ community support or shun these people? Can researchers design gender care that affirms trans people's identities without viewing detransitioners as collateral damage in the fight for fair treatment? A transition can be beneficial to some people, but hellish to others, as it was for Beck. These are not opposing political viewpoints. They simply reflect a wide range of real outcomes of medical interventions that can fundamentally transform a person's body or their life. What a good point. The the rush, there was a, when was Caitlyn Jenner?
1: Maybe seven years ago. 2015, maybe,
0: something like that. At the period where this Navy SEAL... Came out in tw- or I transitioned in 2013. It was the beginning of a media land rush to talk about trans, right? And it was affirming, 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 affirming against, you know, Mike Pence, basically like th- <laughs> these mean old people and they want to do that. And, and it was such a simplistic story. And do you recall when 60 Minutes last year did a piece on this, on detransitioning? No, the the I think the dam has started to crack in terms of acknowledging that this is a much more complicated issue and that it's not like, you know, black civil rights or something. It's not a it's not clean in the sense that this is the good answer. This is the bad answer. These stories are complicated. Yeah, at o- the very Only 10 best. years too late. Yeah. Only, well, but what I say is. Better late than never, right? It would have been it would have been great if this this kind of thinking had been present at the beginning, and but now I think you've seen in the media the shift starting to happen, and I say kudos to the Atlantic for publishing this, and good for them.
1: The last item before we get to our style section, Chris, is that our friend Alex Thompson has decamped Politico for Axios,
0: mm-hmm. and I love I love his announcement. Personal news: I'm joining the amazing team at Axios. The big picture, Colin. I'm going to be covering 2024 as a national political correspondent. Between the lines, thank you, Politico, for the last four and a half years. All caps. Be smart, colon, Add me to your email list, Alex Scott Thompson at Gmail. I'd love it. I love this. I love the self-reference because regular listeners will know that I find Axios's juvenile, paint-by-numbers approach to the news infuriating it's really I, grown on me oh Chris it's,
1: and I are at odds on this it
0: gets worse all the time I love Josh Crosshour and they've hired Josh Crosshour by the way did we talk about the David Drucker joining the dispatch no yes David Drucker joining the dispatch I love David he's a friend of mine and he is such a good gutsy political reporter who goes that wants to go out on the road wants to go to the fair and see the elephant and I'm really it's going to be a great addition for our 2024 coverage but anyway
1: well, congrats to David.
0: Heck yeah, congrats and con- to congrats to the dispatch. But I was reading Josh Crosshour who used to write his column was called Against the Grain when he was writing at National Journal and poor Josh, who is a good writer, watching his prose be assaulted by the subhead and chunks. It looked like that there it looked like there were remoras that were attaching themselves to the body of a great fish. It was sad. It made me bummed out.
1: Chris that brings us to our style section.
0: Oh, yes. The National Review, NR, has a best coffee cup in conservatism contest in which they pitted the...
1: I picked my favorite just from the ones displayed.
0: Okay, Commentary Podcast <clears throat> ha- yeah, has I one. liked the
1: Commentary pod.
0: Law pod. and Liberty, National Review itself, the Manhattan Institute, and the Morning Dispatch.
1: I voted for Commentary.
0: It's a nice, I like the Morning Dispatch height of the mug. Okay. It's a good height. I like that. The Manhattan Institute mug, I like. I like the low and wide, which okay. is AEI's mugs are low and wide. None of these, of course, are as good as the C-SPAN mug. The C-SPAN mug is truly great. Classic. La- large Classic volume, of the genre. Low slung and large in volume. It's like an I.M. pay kind of, it's like an am pay kind of approach, which I really like. So this got me to thinking. Media business has a lot of weird swag in it and has always had a lot of weird swag in it. I'm a collector of some of that weird swag. I used to have a pair of glasses from the Charleston Daily Mail and Charleston Gazette where they were giving out as an enticement to subscribers with replicas of famous front pages on the glasses.
1: Oh, that's good.
0: Coffee sets, all kinds of things from the news business. And this is our plea to you out there. General viewers, listeners, please email
1: us at. Wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. Wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. At nebul-
0: email us with your best media swag. What is the weirdest, coolest, best stuff that you've got? Please attach pictures. We will put the best in Hiel Wretches, our newsletter that you, I'm sure, are already subscribed to. But we want to see it. What's the weirdest, best stuff that you've got? New, old, left, right, center, whatever. Send us pictures of your tote bags. Send us pictures of your salt and pepper shakers. We want
1: to know. Okay, Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down these stories we can't get out of our heads. And Chris, I am shouting out, a Free Beacon story this week, like, this is adjacent to a Free Beacon story this week, okay? So, the Free Beacon wrote the story. The UAE has donated millions to the Atlantic Council. They just got a glowing op-ed from the think tank's chief. So, the Atlantic Council's CEO, Fred Kemp, wrote this glowing op-ed about the UAE in CNBC. And, you know, we saw it, our great reporter, Chuck Ross, saw it, and thought, huh, UAE gives lots and lots of money to the Atlanta Council, but they didn't disclose it. So he puts in a request for comment, and after he put in the request for comment, but before the piece went up, we see this appended to the CNBC article, which we will link at the very top of the article. Editor's note. This article and headline were updated to reflect the fact that the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company and Mastar are major sponsors of the Atlanta Council's Global Energy Forum. Sultan al-Jaber is CEO of ADNOC, and that's UAE government official who is mentioned in the piece, and chairman of renewable energy investing firm Mazdar. The financial relationship between the companies and Atlantic Council, as well as the obvious conflict of interest, were not disclosed to CNBC prior to publication of this column and does not meet our standards of transparency. Uh Uh-oh. But, you know, it was such a good lesson in, like, What you see is there's so much going on behind the scenes of what you're reading in some of these news pieces, especially when it involves think tanks in this city through which so much foreign money is flowing in many cases. There are think tanks. I believe AEI is one of them that doesn't take donations from foreign governments. I I have
0: made a very specific, very specific business of not knowing who gives what to the American Enterprise Um, Institute because if I don't know, it can't mess me up. Wow. Yeah. That wow. was that's that's a doozy, and that's a doozy, and, and you and know,
1: CNBC just threw them under the bus hardcore.
0: Well, and but the the thing is, there's a lot of the op-ed space, as you know, in Washington D.C. that exists only as buck raking, Right? There are a lot of places that have a pretty open policy for taking op-eds, and let's say that the I, Hill
1: comes to mind.
0: Let's say that I gave you let's say that I was the American Barbecue Council and I gave you a 5 million dollar gift to support your work in supporting barbecue and you're and all of a sudden the free beacon is like also barbecue also barbecue people be like well that's weird the free beacon wasn't really a barbecue facing publication before but maybe you get by with that and then you can go to CNBC or wherever you want <clears throat> real clear politics or wherever and start posting op-eds talking about how much you love barbecue and you can do it. You can do it. And the, the
1: Chris, you'd be good at this job.
0: The And you can send me back clips. We were in 22 publications this month, pushing our barbecue agenda yeah. forward. We were doing this. We are bold about barbecue. What you will not include are the total number of reads, right? Because <clears throat> this, this, Obviously, terribly, awfully boring and clearly slanted article that was posted at CNBC's op-ed page. Nine people read, right? Nobody is like, ho, ho, what's this you say about the UAE? I must know more about the United Arab Emirates. So thanks to the digital revolution, there's an unlimited amount of space in Washington and politically facing publications just to dump this kind of swill. That's all I got. I mean, I, I like Amazing. I like I like a clean and clear obsession. Yeah, my obsession is more complicated. Okay, so Ben Shapiro and and some associates have started a movie studio.
1: Yes, very smart.
0: Their first their first big movie stars Gina Carano, who was on the formerly popular and formerly good Disney show, The Mandalorian, yep. which was a Star Wars show,
1: and then she got dumped, right?
0: Yeah, she she got a little she she got a little out over her skis and 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 she got real political, she got fired. She said that she was canceled for her political views. I think there was some vaccine stuff in it. I don't remember. I don't care. Who cares? You know how much time I spend thinking about celebrities and actors' political opinions? Well, the time that I spend thinking about their opinions about public health is even less than that. But anyway, She got canceled and Ben Shapiro's film company picked her up. They made a movie. How did the movie do? No idea. Not well. Did not do well. Did very poorly. And, of course, the Onions AV Club did not miss the opportunity. (laughs) Did not miss the opportunity to come and sneer at the failure of the film. Uh, I think it was something like it did like $900 in box office or something. It was not good. So anyway, she responded to the Onion's review, okay, with typical restraint. <laughs> okay, with, with the typical restraint for an MMA fighter, and go and goes after
1: eight hundred and four dollars.
0: Was that the number? Okay, so not a not a large number. Anyway, so she goes after her critics and has a you know another episode on Twitter and does all that stuff, and then what is interesting, and this is from IndieWire. That there were here's the headline from Kristen Zilko, the writer. Gina Carano's new Ben Shapiro produced movie is somehow still too woke for some right wingers. The criticism came in, so it's like a from the, I guess we would call it the the Jordan Peterson community, the Jordan Peterson community or something over there. The incel set that it was still woke because it's a dominant woman that the the movie has a dominant woman in it.
1: What is the movie about? Do we know? It's
0: called It is subtly called Terror on the Prairie okay. and it is about a mom who fights for her family against desperados and I can tell you this, the setting is beautiful. The the vistas are gorgeous in the in the Big Sky Country out west. The acting is maybe a little heavy-handed. Okay. Maybe a little heavy-handed. Anyway, this is my point, and this goes back to what we, were, what I was saying about Trevor Noah. Don't make your art political. Art is political sometimes, but just make art. Don't make political art because, as the people criticizing her for being too masculine in the movie reveal, you'll never please the. Pe-. It's just if if your objective, the objective of a creative endeavor should be to tell a story that's on your heart that you want to tell and that you want to share with the world. And you want to take a feeling or a thought that's in your heart, in your mind, and put it in somebody else's heart and somebody else's mind. Maybe they can see you for who you are. Art that is politically or politically calculated is not as good, and you ought not do it because it's going to end up, how about this? Who's the most conservative filmmaker? Who is the most influential conservative filmmaker of the 1980s? No idea. John Hughes. What were John Hughes's movies about? John Hughes's movies were about families who and even home alone. What's the what's the moral oh of Oh my
1: gosh. Love that movie. What's so the moral much. of the story I of home? I cried alone? my eyes out when the mom, when Mrs. McAllister came home at the yeah. end and Kevin comes running down the stairs.
0: <sighs> families that that take care of each other, families oh, that stick together. Love you it. Do it. What's the moral of the story in uh, sixteen candles and all of this other stuff? They're they're Uh, transgressively traditional. They don't look traditional in every way, but they're transgressively traditional and championing traditional values. John Hughes did not set out to make a conservative movie. He did not set out to make a liberal movie. He set out to make the movie he wanted to make, and it was great. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a great movie and, interestingly, has some great messages for people to remember uh, carrying forward. Make art. Don't do don't do politics disguised as art. And I'm not saying that the movie Terror on the Prairie was not a sincere artistic expression of its creators, but when artists like Carrasco, and she is, of course, in the vast minority, 99%, and we've talked about this before with What's-His-Name, who went on Tucker Carlson to say he was suing... Twitter for or the Democratic National Committee because they ruined his career. James Woods. Oh, right. When right, James right. Woods said that it was the DNC that ruined his career. Mo- 99% of the stuff is on the left side. Just don't be so political. Just be artistic. We, there's, we, there's, we'll take care of the politics. There's plenty of politics being done.
1: Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, Do which it. is reader mail. Oh, yeah. So, our first note is from alec mcausland in paradise valley arizona and alec writes dear wretches the news themes you play are chiseled deeply into this boomer's memory they're a nostalgic pleasure every week strumming chords of mystic memory i realized recently that each section of the show save one has a theme your style section is themeless i recognize it was not a part of your original design but it has become a welcome regular feature and it fully deserves the music of its own if I may, let me nominate for the task the theme music from hard-hitting celebrity journalist oh Robin gosh. Leach's story, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous.
0: Okay, let's take a listen real quick. I love it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is the greatest thing ever. Colin, can we use that? Okay, so there's some probably some copyright issues. But I will tell you, Alec McCausland, you are right isn't he right I love it and we'll find something we'll find something with an entertainment oh do you remember entertainment tonight the, what, we'll find something that that evokes style section coverage thank you that is excellent
1: okay and then we have a note from Dana Goldstein in Monsey New York and Dana writes hi and happy New Year just one quick, just a quick note regarding Chris's take on Grace and Frankie and 80 for Brady. As a Gen Xer, I'd like to put in a vote in favor of shows and movies like these. Oof. While I haven't seen the movie yet, I enjoyed all seasons of Grace and Frankie. The writing was fantastic, and I welcomed the relatively tame language. The cast was wonderful, including the young adult children of the leads, and the plot lines, lines came solidly from character. The show assumed it was playing to an intelligent audience that could follow generational references similar to how veeps writers knew exactly to whom they were speaking i think if you gave the show a try you'd be pleasantly surprised both this and 80 for brady are the sorts of vehicles that used to be standard fare during the studio system when character actors were given opportunities to lead smaller pictures with their own audiences for a wonderful example of this see spring byington in am i getting that name completely wrong byington. See spring byington in 1950 in Louisa. Forgive me, Dana, for butchering that name. I think one of the benefits of the streaming world has been to give a space for these vehicles to find their audiences, audiences as they used to. I totally agree with that. The Redford Fonda picture wasn't bad either. Oh, way. my gosh. Not oh, everyone wants yet Dana. another Star Wars or Star Trek installment or shows about drug-addled teens. I'm more than happy to watch people I recognize in well-written work that wouldn't have had a shot at getting made 20 years ago. Thank you both so much for brightening my Fridays.
0: Oh, my gosh. Dana Goldstein. First of all, when uh, Jane Fonda's father, Henry Fonda, appeared with Katherine Hepburn in On Golden Pond about about love in 1981 when they were in their 70s, that was a good movie. The, And I am sorry to use this language. The libidinous octogenarians of the Netflix movie, basically the point of the Robert Redford, Jane Fonda movie was like, we're too good looking not to be having sex. How can two people as good looking as us, even though we are old, not be having intercourse? And it's it, it went a little deeper than that, but not much. Now, I will take your guidance on Grace and Frankie and I will actually watch I will watch because you seem like a smart person and you obviously know a thing or two about good entertainment. So I will open myself up, Dana Goldstein to your recommendation. I will not watch 80 for Brady in which lusty gals celebrate their 80th birthday by going to meet Tom Brady. Crap like that has been a product of every era of the studio biz and I I'll pass, but I will, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to watch at least one episode Of Grace and Frankie, and I will report back. I thank you for the recommendation and I appreciate the insight.
1: Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week, which is our favorite items where I am forced to say something nice and I will not have a problem this week, but where you, as always, lead by example. Okay, I
0: love the local news. The local news is great, and I am going to share with you. Uh, So Ellen Fleming, a reporter for Channel 22 in Boston, told this one on herself, and here she is in her field report. Parts of this bill are similar to the executive orders that have already been put in place in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Hampshire. (laughs) That's good. One more time. Parts of this bill are similar to the executive orders that have already been put in place in New Hampshire. <laughs> uh,
1: that is good. That's I love
0: good. it. And she said, sometimes that Boston accent slips out when you least expect it. Good for you, Ellen Fleming, for, for telling on yourself. And I think you're going to do great.
1: Chris, mine is one that you flagged, which was a profile of the George Mason University economist, Tyler Cowen. Mm-hmm. And it's so well written. It is behind a paywall, which is super annoying, but this is how it starts. Tyler Cowan has only drunk coffee twice in his life. Tyler? Oh my gosh. He only drinks tea if someone offers it. He doesn't touch alcohol. Alcohol is bad for everyone's productivity. Instead, Cowan's drug of choice is information. He isn't just an addict, he's a peddler, a kingpin. Through his blogs, podcasts, and books, he spreads big thoughts and highbrow trivia. He is among the most eclectic economists. He champions markets and big business. He insists that artificial intelligence, starting with chatbots such as ChatGPT, is about to change the world. But he also writes about restaurants, films, and books because he enjoys them and because he's convinced that culture shapes markets and vice versa. People should collect more information about music, about economics, about books. So I try to show them how to do that. It's awesome. And Tyler's podcast,
0: Conversations
1: with Tyler is so good.
0: Oh, very good. Okay, and his restaurant reviews, of course, amazing.
1: It's so good. I haven't read the restaurant oh, reviews. Oh, so where do good. I read those?
0: I forget. I we'll find we'll find Hold on.
1: I'm gonna, I'm googling it right now. But Oh my gosh, Tyler Cowen's Ethnic Dining Guide.
0: Yes, it's superb and if you want to know where to get the best samosas and pupusas and everything else in Washington Metro Washington, it's amazing. And he has his rule, you know, his rule. Look for restaurants with bars on the windows because that means there's something worth having inside.
1: This is awesome. Okay, that is all the time we have left. For the news about the news, if you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.
0: Produced by Colin
1: Oh, course. yes.